Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the December 19, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. As I speak, the national legislature is moving oh so quickly to pass the tax overhaul bill, passed out of conference committee. I pronounce all media AWOL who fail to point out that tax cuts are essentially a cut in services, and that is a cost to most households. Do the math. Today, our program includes UCI professor Bob Uriu. He's going to step up with this political science, have to take on the surreal and consequential ordeal that is the U.S.-North Korea relations. And for the second segment, working in a few room at the Inn themes, my guest will be Iman Siddiqui covering the Refugee Student Scholarship Program. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. One talks about fraught situations like U.S.-North Korean relations. You really need to bring in the credentialed class, like my first guest, Bob Uriu, professor of political science at UCI, specializing in international relations and international political economy with expertise in East Asia and an emphasis on American foreign policy toward the region. His current research is on how Japan, Korea, and China are making efforts to incorporate hydrogen into their renewable energy mix. The push by these three countries on this promising technology may have a huge impact on the world's energy future. Bob Uriu also focuses on the rise, fall, and revival of the approach known as the, in quotes, East Asian model, end quote, how these policy ideas were developed and tracks their trends throughout East Asia. After the Asian financial crisis of 1997, I remember that well, and I used to collide with with Bob on his commute to the campus. These ideas fell temporarily out of favor, but have been revived in the last 10 years with the rise of China and the post-2008 crises industrialized economies. His past research focused on the formation of U.S. trade policy toward Japan during the Clinton administration, as well the impact of new policy ideas on the decision to pursue an explicitly results-oriented approach during the framework negotiations, including the U.S. demand that Japan agree to include objective criteria and numerical targets in trade agreements. His publications include Clinton and Japan, the Impact of Revisionist Ideas on U.S.-Japan Trade Relations, published by Oxford University Press, and Troubled Industries Confronting Economic Change in Japan, published by Cornell University Press in 1996-97, as a director of Asian Affairs at the National Security Council, Bob Uriu was involved in policymaking toward all aspects of U.S.-Japan relations. He is a two-time Fulbright Scholar as an International Affairs Fellow by the Council on Foreign Relations and earlier for his dissertation write-up award from the Social Science Research Council. Bob Uriu was a visiting foreign scholar at Keio in University, the University of Tokyo, the International Christian University of Tokyo, and Japan's Ministry of International Trade and Industry. Among his numerous awards for teaching is the Distinguished Faculty Award for Teaching for the UCI campus. Prior to coming to UCI, he was on the Columbia University faculty. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts in International Relations and Japanese from UC Davis, his Master's of Arts and Master of Philosophy from Columbia's Political Science Department, a Master's of of International Affairs uh, and his PhD in Political Science from Columbia University. Bob has lived in Japan for six years, speaks and reads Japanese. He joins me in studio to talk the big bite we're gonna chew off here on North Korea. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Bob Uriu. Thank you for having me, Claudia. Well, that was quite an introduction. There. Well, that's quite that's quite a, a, a stint here. Well, hell with the doomsday clock ticking ever closer to midnight with the amateur hour performing in the White House. Let's bite off, as I say, a big one. An obviously difficult situation, breaking it down between before our current president and since our president's election. I'm going to be testing Bob's resolve to maintain a reassuring tone. Let's talk. You You want to open with a bottom line situation we're facing right now. Yes, you know, I guess the first thing I would say is the United States really does not have a military option that we could actually use with North Korea. 
you know, Donald Trump has been saying many things, and many people have been, you know, sort of beating the war drum. I saw in the uh, uh, online that almost half of America thinks uh, a first strike, a preemptive strike on North Korea, is a good thing. The message I would give to Donald Trump is basically, please listen to your generals, who are probably telling you that any kind of preemptive or preventive strike on North Korea will be a disaster. First of all, uh, as we'll probably talk about later, it will not work. But more importantly, it will lead to incredible casualties in Seoul, perhaps in Tokyo. We're talking about a million, 10 million people, uh, depending on what weapons North Korea uses. And I don't think any responsible, rational leader should even consider the idea of a preemptive or preventive strike on North Korea. Well, I want to, there's a sort of a, also besides a military aspect, there's a psychological aspect to opening up a nuclear conflict like this, a war, is that does everybody already have a playbook and they know exactly what they're going to do? Isn't there sort of like a whole lot of uncertainty that nobody knows really what, what's the next step? Oh, absolutely. There's, the no, there's no game plan for nuclear war. There's just a button. Yes, you know, that's a very good point. I think the first button push is maybe, you know, planned out, maybe the second volley, I'm not sure. But beyond that, any kind of conflict like that will get out of hand so quickly. Um, and with the uncertainty and the destruction that you're talking about, uh, it would get completely out of hand. And no, I don't believe anybody has a, a real plan after that. We have a lot of plans about striking North Korea conventionally and you know, in, in an invasion of North Korea, that sort of thing. But once it goes nuclear, then, uh, again, all bets are off. Well, and the, the plans in the past, as we're reading in the editorial press and the regular narratives and the articles, is that there, there was with China, there is some kind of a tacit agreement between the U.S. and China about what to do with N North Korea in conventional situations. It was kept a discreet discussion point, but Rex Tillerson managed to fumble th that into the public domain last week. Did that just make you cringe, Bob? Many things make me cringe about this administration, but, uh, you know, again, sort of our relationship with China and the agreements you're referring to, I'm not sure if those were, uh, you know, ironclad and really agreed upon. Again, But they the, were a channel. But Oh, yes, we have channels. Channels are everything. We have channels everywhere. We have channels with North Korea. People don't quite realize that, too. But the agree any sort of agreement that was made with China will also fall apart once a military action is taken. So that will, uh, all of those uh, past discussions really will mean nothing, I think. So how high level is that channel with North Korea? Like somewhere underneath Rex Tillerson or is it Rex Tillerson's com sort of counterpart there? We have had a, not so much secret, but a very quiet dialogue with discreet. North Korea. Discreet, okay. Um, for the last 30 years, it is held in New York. It is... Uh, held at the time of the UN uh, General Assembly meetings. It is. It has been in the past our Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State meeting with their counterparts uh, in the uh, a mission in New York. Um, I believe it's the Swedish mission. So we have been talking, again, very quietly up until now. Now, I frankly am not sure if they uh, held the meeting this year. There was some rumors that they were going, the Trump people were going to cancel it, which of course would be a huge mistake. Well, that fits in with the whole vacuum with all kinds of State Department functions, that they're just sort of, it, it seems like there's no cost by some if uh, withdrawing from day-to-day -day activities, and this could be one of those huge costs, oh. huge opportunities lost right now. Oh, completely. And uh, as you know, uh, Trump has not uh, appointed many of the top-level people right. in the State Department. He you know, he says it's sort of on purpose. I think it's really more incompetence, or nobody wants to work with them. I don't know. But without that expertise, we put ourselves in a huge hole. We basically are, are you know, flying by the seat of our pants. Furthermore, we don't have today an ambassador to South Korea. Uh, That's the, right. The Trump people talked about um, uh, nominating uh, Victor Cha, who would be very good. Oh, he would be. Okay. But he, uh, as far as I know, he has not, uh, nothing has gone forward. So there is a huge vacuum of leadership. 
And, you know, Donald Trump has said uh, it doesn't matter because, you know, he's the one who makes the decisions. And that, of course, makes everybody quite nervous, especially in Northeast Asia. And with Rick Tillerson also uh, not only paring down by 30 percent the whole State Department, but Mm -hmm. sending, I mean, the signals couldn't be more dizzying in their lack of clarity. Oh, no, no doubt. And the lack of clarity also comes from mixed signals, not just ambiguous signals. In other words, Tillerson would talk about uh, having some kind of dialogue. Trump would shoot that down. Some would talk about, you know, a preventive war and others were saying we should be talking. The North Koreans don't know what's going on. Donald Trump supporters might say this is part of his plan, you know, to make everybody, you know, kind of uh, uncertain. And then he goes in and negotiates a deal later. I tend to think that it's more they really do not have a plan at all. One more thing. Yes. You may have heard this, but the North Korean officials have actually contacted many American scholars who study North Korea. Is that right? And asked them, what is happening with your government? What are they trying to do? So so that's another channel of <laughs> sorts. I mean, it, it's not a conventional channel, so there are, there's an infrastructure <laughs> lacking in that. But that, but that's. I don't think any of us appreciate that's going on, Bob. That's why you're on the show. Well, it's a channel, but it's a channel out of desperation, and it's right. not the Trump people being able to talk to North Korea. It's basically everybody trying to figure out what Trump is doing. I don't want to be uncharitable, but I'm not sure if Donald Trump knows what he's doing. In other words, it does seem that he says very many inconsistent things. It doesn't seem like there's any kind of plan or. Or, or strategy. Um, it looks like a detachment. <laughs> yes, right. Benign neg- uh, neglect. Uh, I would say even worse than worse that. that. <laughs> yes. Not so benign, but uh, mm-hmm. detachment neglect. Okay. Well, was it different having the <clears throat> Kim Jong Il be involved in more in the cinema kind of things, and the the son in his thirties trying to prove his militaristic mettle with investing so much in warfare engineering was is is mm-hmm. this this a sort of a no path no retreat path to a militarization and it can be rather unsettling and what kinds of choices that we're faced with at this point right you have so much in that question there first of all take whatever you want yes many people have talked about regime change you know if we can just get a get rid of the leader things will be better right I also believe that that sort of more really aggressive sort of violent uh, option is also not an option. Again, we will talk about the destruction North Korea yes. can wreak on Seoul and, and elsewhere. But the assumption in the past has always been if we can just get rid of this guy, the next guy is going to be somehow better. And, and you know, we talked about getting rid of the father, Kim Jong-il. And lo and behold, as you're just saying, Kim Jong-un, the son, is a hundred times worse. And in always in terms of repression, in terms of the weapons program, in terms of aggressiveness. I hear people now talking about regime change. We just somehow decapitate North Korea, get rid of Kim Jong-un. I think there's an equal chance that we could come up with a, say, a military group that's, you know, even more hardline, more aggressive. So I think it's a very dangerous option to think about. You asked about whether this is sort of a, they've gone beyond a point of of no return. In many ways, I think that is true. And the reason is, first of all, I consider Kim Jong-un to be completely rational. Right. Even though he does crazy things, but in our eyes, his rationality stems from he wants to survive. And, and he, he wants a stable North Korea. Absolutely. As, with yes. all its deprivation, but it, stable. So his main threats to his survival is, of course, the outside, the United States and South Korea. But on the inside, there are politics. And, you know, I think people really forget that, you know, pol- politics works everywhere. Even and, in repressed societies. Oh, absolutely. Maybe even, even more so. Yeah. You know, in other words, obviously it's not the people, but in his case, it is the generals, it is the party, it is the uh, some of the bureaucracy. Maybe. And the, and the business class. There uh, is a business class absolutely, there. Absolutely. Yes. Right. So he has these constituents, if you will. Again, right. No elections. Or actually, they do but have they elections. Then <laughs> They're completely sham. Uh, but he needs to placate them. And I think what you said earlier is right. His aggressiveness, his uh, the the commitment to the weapons program, 
I think is driven as much by domestic politics as it is by the international. So it will be impossible for him to step back and uh, destroy his weapons or denuclearize. It's not going to happen. And so I think that's also something we should, we the U.S. should take into account. There are limits to what we can actually expect North Korea to do. And in that sense, I think we have to lower our expectations of what we can actually accomplish. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI political science professor Bob Uriu, specializing in international relations and international political economy with expertise in East Asia and an emphasis on American foreign policy toward the region, doing this heavy lift of analyzing U.S.-North <coughs> Korean relations and, and, and such a fast pace here we're keeping. I, I just When you bring up domestic politics, Bob, how do you think the government in North Korea presented to its constituents the assassinations <coughs> of of his stepbrother in Malaysia. Was that was that sort of like so folks, in case you're questioning the control I have, I just wanted I mean was that do you think a, a, a major uh, kind of a, a campaign that he made a point with with his his population? Uh it's, Guess not away. Sim- it's not simply his uh, younger brother. It's also his uncle three years ago. Right. The, uh, the top general has disappeared uh, over the last two months. People are speculating about that. He makes it very clear, and perhaps not so much to the general public. Not so much to them, you think? It's hard to know but, what's going, but... But more importantly, it's to the rest of the military and to the bureaucracy. Obviously, that is the uh, the key to him, really. Because, again, remember, this is the most repressive government in the world. And so the masses of the people, and we don't know really what they're thinking, but at the moment they are so controlled that um, I think they're less of a factor. It really is the military uh, that he is most uh, most worried about. It was an, uh, they were unambiguous assassinations, and with oh, really, yeah. with a very uh, difficult to execute and certain kind of sort of result. I mean, that with that particular poison, it was a very sophisticated one for those two women to administer to his, his stepbrother. Or half brother, I should say. Right. Not step. Right. You know, the, one one point about this that I think is important, and that is, uh, this is changing the subject a little bit, but people have wondered if North Korea would ever open up and become uh, more integrated economically. This is the East Asian model that you talked yes. about, where the government is trying to foster industrialization. This is the model that China adopted, and the Chinese have been trying to get North Korea to do this. On board, yes. Yeah, so everybody in Asia is doing it except for North Korea. There is speculation, and I believe that the brother, Kim Jong-nam, was actually a proponent of that economic uh, uh, strategy. The father, Kim Jong-il, also showed at least some interest, never followed through, but uh, but the brother actually was a proponent. So I have not seen this definitively proved, but I do believe that his assassin- assassination had to do more with ideas, with the rival ideology of economic development. And a signal to China. Perhaps, yes. But Kim Jong-un, I think, has made the calculation that any sort of openness, where you're exporting, where you're importing, bringing in investment, all of that, even though it would lead to economic development, would also open up the country to political ideas, to outside interference. And so their ideology, it's known as juche, it, it is uh, translated as self-reliance. That oh. is something they want to maintain a- at all costs because it is the core of his political control of the country. So, Bob, we we should have given you an hour for this. I don't know what I was thinking at the time, but um, there's so much in it, there. So let's go back then to the there's no way back from where North Korea has arrived. That nuclear weapon capacity mm-hmm. is a bargaining chip like no other. So I guess I, I'm <clears throat> going to throw you a, a sort of a curveball here is, maybe, there and, and Kim Jong-un is probably beyond also any kind of, elegant co-option let's lead him into a different life let's let's um you know if, if there's some can we offer something so unorthodox that he would see a, a different you know a life a different situation 
hard to, to imagine. To take him off of this negotiation <clears throat> of, of right. this one-way bargaining chip. Everything you just said are things that we tried with the father, Kim Jong-il, uh, and to some degree they worked. Uh, we were right. able to, you know, at least to kind of keep a, a, a lid on things, right? It sure seems to me that the current leader, one of the problems, I think, is that he, in fact, is weak uh, uh, oh, really? domestically, politically. Oh. Right. Okay, back to and his rational options. Exactly, actions. and so you know, I think his way of holding on to power is to be super aggressive domestically in terms of the violence, but also very provocative internationally. And one way he unifies the country is by saying the United States is the evil devil; they're out to get us. Which you know, they are. There's something rational to that. Yeah. Well, just in the sense that North Korea is so weak militarily and economically, uh, they are just, it is, you know, if you look at the numbers, it is just so far behind. Their only Trump card, I hate to use that word, is the nuclear weapon. And that is, I think, they believe is something that will level the field. And in that sense, I think Kim Jong-un is calculating that his only means of external survival is to have those weapons and the ability to threaten everybody who might threaten him, and that includes the United States. So it will be, as I said earlier, impossible for him to give the thing up. But I think there are ways where we could, uh, again, put a lid on uh, you know, the range of the missiles. We could How's that? What can we do? Yes, well. This is what moment I'm waiting for. The idea of uh, negotiation at the moment, it is hard to imagine uh, just because the tensions are so high. But I think entering into talks actually would work on a couple of, of levels. One, it would hopefully, as long as Donald Trump quits tweeting, it would lower the tension level. Well, that's, a, that's not going to happen. He's not going to stop. Yeah, perhaps. That. The but provocations aren't going to happen. Well, that so is, yes, that is what makes me so very uh, worried about this right now. Uh, this is, we're closer to a nuclear confrontation than any other time in history. Uh, you know, if you go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course, that was the last time we came this close. But think who he had in the White House at that time. You know, John F. Kennedy, as you know, I think hand well, I think he handled it very well. Um, you know, calm, I think all rational. historians agree about yes, that. Yes, right. And can you imagine if Donald Trump were in the same situation? Um, so you do need rational and, and calm leadership. I'm not sure we have that today. Ingenuity. And that's what I think. It's not just a curiosity lacking, but there's not. It doesn't. The regime in the White House does not have an ingenuity to it. It's there's there's no nuance. There's no creativity. There's not any of that practice. It's it's impulse. Right. You know, I think historians are going to have a fun time if we don't head into disaster trying to figure out what was going on in this White House. It really is sort of mind boggling. Going back to the point you were asking about earlier though, yes. I think negotiations would help if only to make the sort of what is acceptable and not acceptable clearer. And the worst way to deal with Kim Jong-un is to threaten him and to, you know, draw these red lines and say, you know, or else. I think the better way to deal with him is in a much more calm sort of way where you're, you're basically talking about things that they want or want to avoid. You're talking about things that we might be able to do. At the moment, I'm not, as I said, very optimistic about um, uh, negotiations. But if we enter into them or if we do sanctions, we have to remember that they are not going to give up those weapons completely. No, no. They, Denuclearation yeah. is off the table. But that is, of course, what you're hearing from uh, the American, uh, the U.S. government. It's important, perhaps, to say that out loud. In other words, to admit, you know, we're not trying to denuclearize. That's a very difficult thing to do. But as long as they have inside the uh, idea that denuclearization is not going to happen. Remember, this is a nuclear power already, right? They've had weapons they since 2005. The uh, arcs for every mm -hmm. launching are higher each time that, that <clears throat> express a, a wider range where the... Absolutely. The missile to be directed <laughs> laterally, not vertically. That's right. And, you know, I've always said they've had now between 10 and 20 nuclear weapons. The New York Times is reporting they may have 40 to 60 already. Good gosh. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm no longer, I, have, I no longer have access to inside information. But if that is the case, again, remember, they've had these, uh, you know, for many years now. Also, 
They have had the ability to destroy Seoul with nuclear weapons or Tokyo. You know, it doesn't take a very accurate missile to, you know, hit somewhere in Tokyo and you kill millions of people. Yeah. So the people in the region have lived with this menace, and we have used simply conventional deterrence. The idea that if they do anything, they will be destroyed. That message, I think, has to be uh, sent to North Korea, and it has been. But again, it's important to do it in a calmer, sort of, you know, very stable sort of way. So, Bob, <laughs> this begs the question, and I've asked other in, uh, intellectuals when we're finding a paucity of leadership on the national level is, isn't there an op there's an opportunity and a necessity for our intellectual class to find any channels at all to bring that clarity that you're talking about that brings down the sort of temperature of the interactions on the, the in the international level isn't there there is a fit here for the intellectual class to step up and provide some kind of nuance and clarity and reasonable discourse. As informal as it might be, it's, it's essential that those channels be doing something, be performing. There is no doubt about that. But the White House needs to be listening. And every White House up until this one actually did listen. And they took in, into account a range of, of opinion and, and different voices. Also, we have what is known as the Track 2 and the Track 3 uh, international negotiations in East Asia. I mean, these are security-related dialogues uh, between all of the countries. North Korea has uh, been involved in some of these. Those are informal. They uh, have uh, American government officials in a civilian capacity. Okay. Uh, they have intellectuals, academics. They have uh, people, politicians. And it's a very useful uh, exercise where you are communicating uh, you know, those communications, discussions do get reported to the national government, and it serves as a very important sort of basis. But, and once again, the White House, the people in the White House need to be listening. And I am not sure that this current uh, government is actually willing to listen. All right. Let's look at the personnel that are appointed to do anything in official capacities. You said Victor Cha has not been put in uh, office at the St Department of State, but Bob, who do you venture to say is the highest level person that has the best capacity within the administration to start show demonstrating that the White House is listening? Is there anybody that you can think of? As I mentioned earlier, I hope Donald Trump is listening to his three generals, Mathis, McMaster, and Kelly. But he's getting used to not listening to them. Well, it's but, not clear. Yeah. Yes, yes, I know. You know, he goes because off. he's watching those crazy videos yes, that are right. inciting other dangers right. in the world. But okay, so, so turn off Fox News, stop tweeting, and listen to the generals. And I stop guess. taking what Infowars <laughs> shows you in those uh, sorted videos. But yes. right, so, so I think the general who so, is so, so those think, are the ones. I think General Mathis is the one that I would uh, uh, pin my hopes on. He is has been has kept a very low profile. He's a very intelligent man. He knows. The, the playing field. He knows, and I think his advice has been behind what we have not done so far. Okay. Again, threatening, uh, you know, if they do something, you know, threatening destruction, I mean, that is what every American president has done for 40 years. It's really the tone. Yep. And then the, you know, it's it's like two bullies on the on the playground, right? You know, they're insulting each other. They can't back and They're down. on a sugar high. Or something, from, right? They didn't get lunch. The and, problem yeah. here is that both have nuclear weapons. Yep. And so, you know, if they are just... And remember, I think, uh, I hate to say this too, but in some ways I have more uh, confidence in Kim Jong-un in the sense that we know what he's going to do. He, we, I think we know what his limits are. We don't know what Donald Trump's on the this chart. Is so, so this is understandable, and it's unprecedented. Um, it really is. That is an amazing point, mm. and it's understandable. Mm. You know, before we close, I, I wanted to make uh, just make sure I made one point, and that is, North Korea is already deterred. They know that they, if they well, do there's China anything, right there. Well, not e okay. Yes, China too, but even just North Korea alone, with South Korea and the United States. They know that any attack, any missile launch, uh, will be met with a, a huge amount of force. And that is why, again, it, he is deterred. He's not going to start something. And as uncomfortable as it is, 
living with a North Korea that has nuclear weapons, that's a done deal, but also with the ability to shoot a long range, perhaps even hitting the United States. We have dealt with situations like this before. But um, with different leaders, though. Well, you know, not even, I'm ta not talking about North Korea, I'm talking no. about the People's Republic of China oh, in the right. 19, late 50s and early 1960s. With the hydrogen bomb detonated. They were as hostile to the U.S. We feared them more than we fear North Korea, and yet we were able to use conventional deterrence. Again, the idea that if you do anything, we will meet you with you know, great force. That has kept basically the nuclear peace. I do think we can do that with North Korea. But what worries me is that the tweets and the anger and, and the insults, if that leads to some sort of miscalculation where one or the other thinks, uh, you know, again, I can't back down, but I'm going to push it one step further, at some point, and I do believe we it's are plank. close to that point. Yeah. Okay, a plank, yes. You know, when you take that step, and then, as we said earlier, all bets are off. Once it goes conventional, then nuclear. This would be unprecedented. It would be a human tragedy that, if we get into it, really falls on the doorstep of our leadership. Well, Bob, let's make the last question then, uh, since you're so well-schooled with the, the East Asian models. So what are the South Koreans, the Japanese, and the Chinese, what is your best understanding of their back channels that are trying to at least provide their kind of clarity to stabilize this? Yes. Uh, back channels, uh, yes, of course, they're talking. Everybody talks. But more importantly for us, I think, is our allies, and that is Japan and South Korea. <clears throat> Even though Japan you know, doesn't mind some kind of tough line towards North Korea, they do not want war. They do not want us to yeah, take military action. Yeah, they've seen a few. They've yes, seen. They well, yes. Uh, the South Koreans now, as you know, have elected a new president, and President Moon is has is a much more. Con he doesn't want conflict, and certainly not war. If we were to take this action, and Donald Trump has said that we don't need to get allies' approval, even South Korea's approval. First of all, our alliances in North in Northeast Asia will end. Uh, they will not. Again, they're not saying this. That's out loud, devastating. But they would definitely uh, be so angry at the U.S. Remember, we're talking, as I said earlier, about at least a million casualties. Some have estimated if it goes nuclear, you could have 10 million casualties. Just unimaginable carnage. So that's one thing. And then the other is uh, China, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, China has mixed motives in this. Uh, they are not close to North Korea. People forget this. They have very tense relations with North Korea. They don't want North Korea to have the nuclear weapons. They certainly don't want war. But they don't want to see a reunified Korean peninsula where, of course, South Korea would be in control. The United States probably would still be there. They see North Korea as what they call a buffer zone, and so they want it to remain. And we do not know what their position will be if the U.S. is threatening some kind of strike. We really don't. That is a big wild card. It's a huge wild card. And, you know, I don't predict that they would intervene the way they did in the Korean War with 300,000 troops. But it is something that, again, there are just so many uncertainties that I think it is wiser to step down and see where we can go without the military option. Well, Bob, it's been really amazing having this chance to talk with you about this today. That's all the time we have. Thank you, Bob, for taking the time to come in studio with me today. Thank you, Claudia. That I enjoyed that. That was my guest, UCI political science professor Bob Uriu, specializing in international relations, international political economy with expertise in East Asia, and an emphasis on American foreign policy analyzing U.S.-North Korean relations. We'll be right back after a station break with... Iman Siddiqui, who brings to us her all-new Refugee Students Scholarship Program. There's room at the end. Be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Daskalier, walking in the air from the, the musical Snowman. My next guest here on Ask a Leader is Iman Siddiqui, descending from a family originating from a small town in India. Iman is a product of an 
Orange County upbringing and attended Irvine's Northwood High School. She's been a contributing writer to Orange County Register and a children's book author. Look for her book, Haya, The Loyal Student at Your Favorite Independent Book Dealer. As an anteater, Iman's a news editor for the UC's Eyes New University and an activist for refugee rights through both UCI's Hearts of Mercy and National Initiative's Books Not Bombs. All these efforts led to her earning both the Aldrich Scholarship and the Dalai Lama Endowed Scholarship. Her latest success that she's posted is in raising nearly $100,000 for her groundbreaking scholarship program for UC students, the Refugee Students Scholarship Program. The superlative accolades just keep coming in, and namely from the likes of local refugee activists and sometimes guest on Ask a Leader, Dr. Amal Alachkar. Iman in Arabic means someone extremely amazing. She joins me in studio today just so that I get to brush with greatness. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Iman. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. Well, congratulations, Iman, on a string of achievements, among them this very successful event, establishing this phenomenal new organization, the Refugee Student Scholarship Program. Tell us about the seeds that were planted sometime around your family's relocation to the U.S. and your first encounters with Syrian refugees in Turkey. So uh, the reason the scholarship program, the Refugee Student Scholarship Program, is, is personal to me is because the reason my family is in the United States today is because my grandfather received a scholarship to Harvard um, over 50 years ago. Um, so, But my actual inspiration uh, for the program stems from a family trip that I took to Turkey in December 2014 um, during my first year here at UCI, so just about three years ago. And during that trip, I saw Syrian refugees firsthand. You know, and at that point, I'd heard about the refugee crisis, but this was the first time I actually saw Syrian refugees. And in fact, um, I didn't know they were Syrian refugees at first. I just remember a group of young children running up to us. You know, oh. they, they started saying Ammo um, to my father, which I know from my Arab friends means uncle in, okay. in Arabic. And I could tell from like their gestures and their pleas that they were asking for money. Um, and, you know, I turned to the tour guide and I asked, you know, you know, who are these children? Why are they running um, unsupervised in like the freezing streets? Um, you know, it was December. It was really cold. And he kind of turned to me and said disdainfully that, you know, these were Syrian refugees. And so that encounter really had a strong impact on me. And I wanted to do something at that point, but I didn't know how. But I figured, you know, you know, I'd need a few degrees first. Maybe I'd have to go to law school to make a difference. But I decided that my first course of action as a first-year undergrad at the time would be learning Arabic um, so that I could communicate with those that I wanted to help. And so I enrolled in the Arabic program here upon my return. And in efforts to practice Arabic outside of the classroom, I participated in virtual language exchange programs and applications. And in doing so, I learned that many Syrian refugees were looking to learn English so that they could complete their higher education abroad. And, you know, I realized that creating higher education opportunities was a great way for us to help. You know, it was a way for us to invest in the post-conflict development of war-torn countries, you know, something that's so often overlooked during the course of the war. And I also realized that creating higher education opportunities was something that I could do um, as a college student because I'm familiar with the university system. Yes. And I know how to you know, navigate the university institution. Um, and so then that's what, what led to, to me creating uh, the Books Not Bombs campaign here in yes. the University of California. Which is still it's still in place. Right. Okay. So Books Not Bombs is this nationwide campaign in which students call on their universities to join um, the International Institute of Education Syria Consortium to create scholarships for students displaced by conflict. And so initially I was pushing the University of California administration, you know, at the regents level right, to good. join um, this consortium. But, you know, they expressed to me some of the challenges of, you know, joining the consortium, you know, issues of politicization and the difficulties of allocating funding. Uh, because we are a public institution. And so then that's when I turned to creating uh, my own program and applying for a project grant to make um, the Refugee Student Scholarship Program possible. Well, let's talk about the program then. Who is eligible and uh, in terms of the individuals, the demographics and all, and in what systems, at, at what point they're entering into the system? Because I, actually, I think I've got a customer for you uh, <laughs> for uh, the academic year following this next coming one. So for those listening, they want to know who to, to send all this information to? Who who are eligible for application? Okay. 
So, you know, just to clarify where we are at this point. So we were able to raise a little over $93,000 $93, yeah. during um, wow. the fundraising banquet. And so the next step for us is to create a committee uh, featuring myself, members of Access California Services. Um, they're a nonprofit in Anaheim, and they're the ones that actually created a separate fund for this program. So all the funds that, are, that we're raising are, are going there. And then also uh, the committee will include um, a couple of faculty members here from UCI. And so we're going to sit down and um, create the exact eligibility requirements and also have the application available online for students beginning or continuing in the 2019-2020 academic year. Um, but for now, um, you know, the, the Refugee Student Scholarship Program will work to create scholarships for need-based refugees, asylees, and asylum seekers that are accepted to a University of California, and it'll also help them with uh, mentorship to help them yes. get um, accepted to a UC. And so the scholarship will be available for incoming freshmen, but based on current demand, it seems like most of the applicants will be transfer students. And, you know, Claudia, we would actually encourage that they be transfer students. Um, oh, that's for, where, because that, I saw that picked mm -hmm. up in the press, but they're, um, but it's not everybody. It, it includes the incoming. So, mm -hmm. but you're seeing that need, though, for transfer students. We are, and, um, and there's a couple of reasons why we yes. would encourage that these students um, be transfer students. And first, it's because, you know, it just gives them some time to adjust, you know, to academic life here in the United States. States, you know, just having, to life. <laughs> like, exactly, exactly. Yeah, just because they're starting fresh. So they have a little bit of more time kind of adjusting to community college first. And then also the University of California has this program called the Transfer Admissions Guarantee Program, the TAG. Right. So then that's a way for students, um, you know, guarantees their admission. Um, so because with the, the scholarship program, we'll be providing funding, but it's contingent on their admissions. So the TAG will ensure their admission from a community college in California. And then um, also once they're transfer students, um, they only need two years to complete their bachelor's degree, which means that, you know, it'll require less funding. Oh, okay. So that way we're able to help more students through the Refugee Student Scholarship Program. Well, there are people stepping up. I don't know if this, I mean, it's, this is where people really get lots of context and they retain this information best. Mm -hmm. Some stories about people that you're already uh, encountering that are your likely strong applicants for this. I'm not saying you're committing yourself, but let's 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 get to know some of these aspiring applicants. Yeah, so um, we were able to connect um, with most of potential applicants through Access California Services, um, I, which I mentioned is the yes. nonprofit that's creating a fund for this program. And, um, you know, I, I contacted them and I told them actually about the fundraising banquet um, and because I wanted to invite some potential applicants yes. to the fundraising banquet. That way, community members that were attending um, would have a chance to actually meet the students that, you know, their money was going to help. Um, and so during that fundraising banquet, um, we had, you know, a number of applicants come out, um, almost 20 of them. And, you know, the attendees were from, you know, Iraq, Syria and Afghanistan mainly. And, you know, with all statuses, like some were asylum seekers, some were asylees, um, others were refugees. And um, what was amazing also was just like, you know, the um, the number, the different kinds of ages that we had, too. So, I mean, some were still in high school, um, right. some were college age, like in their 20s. But then there were also um, non-traditional applicants, um, uh, you know, it's people in their 40s and 50s in fact and it was just um, inspiring for the community to see that too you know that you're really never too old to learn and you're never too old to go back to school and get your degree that I'm sorry mm -hmm. I got I missed that but my my guest uh, in this portion of the show is Iman Siddiqui with all that she can muster to make room for more at the inn on this holiday program she's a UCI senior and advocate for the education of displaced students with the refugee student scholarship program that she herself has founded here at UCI. You're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web, KUCI.org. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. Just put up KUCI on there and you'll find all the handles to get on there. So you're telling us about some of those individuals. Why not tell us a, a bit more about how we can follow you are there any events coming up? Are there deadlines now that you, cause you talked about the, the school year mm -hmm. for at the, the applicants would be beginning to be 2019 to 2020. Mm -hmm. So um, what kinds of deadlines, what are the best ways we can find our refugee friends in the community and give them information? 
Um, so I'd recommend, um, because deadlines aren't set yet, we're going to have that committee, we're going to sit down and you know create all those deadlines and have the application available. But for now, I'd recommend um, following uh, refu- the Refugee Student Scholarship Program Facebook page. And also we have um, a website, refugeescholarship.org. Um, so I encourage um, you know potential applicants just to follow those, um, and more information will be available there. But as far as just upcoming events, um, my campus organization, um, in collaboration with other student groups and academic departments, is holding a Refugee Awareness Week um, here at UCI from January 16th um, through 19th. And it, it'll just be a great way you know, to learn more about the, the global refugee crisis. And we'll also be inviting, um, you know, again, you know, refugee students um, and their families for a meet and greet. So it'll be a great way to, you know, to learn more and then also to connect with um, the local refugee community. Where will these events be staged then for the, for the January 16th through the 19th? Um, they'll Come be on. at UCI, the main campus. The, um, right. But where um, do you know? Do you have a place set aside yet? Uh, it'll Booked? be so it'll be in the entire week of events. So each day we'll be all at a over campus location. then, and mm-hmm. so we'll be able to find that. I hope on the UCI events calendar yep. that will be there, mm-hmm. and I'm sure Amal will be in uh, a, yep. around and available mm-hmm. to take that. So there is where nuance is going to stop taking a holiday. It's where people have a chance to really understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. That would be like the week. Is that week two to three? Yeah, week for, two w- on campus for mm-hmm. people that are. Midterms aren't quite nipping at mm-hmm. their heels. That's why yet, we planned so. it just just before. So, are you fanning out with your collaborating uh, with other organizations? I, I can imagine Olive Tree and all, are are those people coming forward to to help promote this and participate in this? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's all over campus. We have a Fresh Start which is a campus organization uh, working to help refugees. Um, You know, they tutor younger refugee students. Um, And, you know, the South Asian Student Union, um, LINK, Liberty in North Korea. So these are just the different student organizations. Academic departments are also helping. Like? Um, We have the UCI Blum Center. Okay. So, you know, they'll be participating. And then also the the UCI School of Social Ecology actually is sponsoring the event. So it's because of their funding that Refugee Awareness Week will be possible. Well, I'm going to have a a social ecology faculty member on January 2. We're going to be talking about Jerusalem. So I can, uh, I'll tag on at the end that we're going to... Yeah, that would th- be amazing. That you're involved with that. That'll be on January 2, but we can, we've got plenty of time there. Mm-hmm. And so will the refugees welcome activists, will Monica Kurka and uh, uh, Rashad, will they be around and available to offer resources to anybody? Yeah, so what we're thinking as far as the planning is that Tuesday uh, of Refugee Awareness Week, um, we'll have a panel of academics, so academics at UCI, just to talk about, you know, like refugees and international law and like other uh, topics pertaining to their research interests. And then Wednesday, we'll have refugee, uh, you know, actor, Syrian actor, and his wife. So it's going to be really cool. And then after that, we're thinking, since that event will be more geared towards community members, um, we'll have different organizations, like the representatives, come up and just talk about ways that the community can get involved. And for that, we can include members of, like, the Arab American Civil Civic Council. Then, okay. Yeah. Good. And, and, and others, like the TIA Foundation and Access. And then Thursday, um, there's going to be an event with uh, the International Studies Public Forum. So that's another, um, you know, academic program at UCI that's also um, co-hosting the Refugee Awareness Week. And so they'll have a speaker talking about Mediterranean migrants and just, you know, the issues that have And that's all the way there. around. That's mm-hmm. Southern Europe. That's e- the Middle East, and it's Northern Africa. Exactly, yeah. Ca- that captures everybody. Mm-hmm. And and then wow. after that, we'll have the meet and greet and, and close off Refugee Awareness Week. Oh, that is a phenomenal mm-hmm. program. I hope you're inviting congressional staff members. Oh, that'd be a great idea. There, uh, there's going there to be a lot of people over there today at 11 o'clock, I announced at the beginning of the program, but you might keep s- sending some emissaries over there and say, oh, this will be a, such an edifying round for all of you and uh, you're going to love the optics you're going to get folks for showing up there because <laughs> I'm certainly at the Arab American Civic Council there there were some amazing elected uh, contributions and interactions last Saturday and it was, it's wonderful mm-hmm. 
Well, the then January 16th through 19th, mm-hmm. and there that is going to be a big bite to chew off for for all of us concerned and watch what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And I, I next uh, the next time you go, let's uh, Bassam Youssef. Why don't you invite him? He's a refugee, right? Satire and blasphemy caught up with him. Mm-hmm. He's the uh, Ag- famous Egyptian satirist, and he's in Los Angeles now. So he's another refugee that could maybe bring in some, you know, some capital some oh, yeah. some uh, get some eyeballs uh, sort of following what you're doing mm-hmm. and uh, he, i think the guy's really generous and he's really bright and so now how can people as we close here mm-hmm. how can they contribute to the refugee student scholarship program so you you clear a hundred thousand dollars before the <laughs> that new would years be amazing. how can they get hold of that so um if you go to the website, refugeescholarship.org, yes, there is right. a button that says Donate Now, and that connects to Access California Services page and because they are creating that fund for us. Okay, folks. So tchotchkes are not as useful in holiday gift-giving as it is if the family all <laughs> joins in on the Refugee Student Scholarship Program. Wow. Iman, I so revere your application and your gracious and generous heart. Thank you so much you, for Claudia. being on the show Thank you today. For having me. That was Iman Siddiqui, and she is an activist here at UCI campus. She is the founder of the Refugees Scholarship Student Program. So we've got, we'll put up the refugeescholarship.org website so everybody can see that and contribute. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, I've got some holiday goodies. For you from the Pacific Standard Time, happening all over the Los Angeles Basin, Malcolm Warner, Executive Director of the Laguna Beach Art Museum, will present a cornucopia of riches entitled California Mexicana, Missions to Murals, 1820 to 1930. And that ends January 14th. So just before you go over to the the big program at UCI, you've got to finish up, go to this exhibit. Then the other segment of my show next week is Ileana Sepero. She's a curator of one cool exhibit entitled Cuba Is at the Annenberg Space for Photography in LA. And it ends on March 4th of next year. And before I wish you all happy holidays, these are my sincere wishes. That lights are turned on in Puerto Rico. That tribal warfare ceases in the U.S. of A. That civil society is restored and cholera is eradicated in Yemen. That refugees everywhere are welcome abroad until they are finally able to return safely to their homelands, if that is what they wish. And that you and I keep the conversation flowing well beyond 2018. The list never ends, does it? Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Happy holidays. <laughs>